Good evening. We're glad you're here with us as we continue our series, Jesus, Muhammad, and Darwin. We're looking at some of the major belief systems in the world and things that even you don't think about as being religions, but that are shaping our world. Let me say a prayer for us, and we will jump right in. This is a fascinating lesson tonight. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us together. It's with a heavy heart that we are here today. As we think back on the things that have happened in our world, it reminds us of how broken the world is, how broken some people in our world are with the hurricanes and the difficulties, the loss of life and the struggles in Puerto Rico, Father, with the earthquakes in Mexico and then with the senseless shooting in Las Vegas. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be loose in this world, that you might work through us and others who follow you to be healing hands, encouraging words, and just show your love to this world and point to a different direction. Lord, we thank you and we love you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, just come on in. We're pretty casual here. And text your questions during class, if you'd like, to that number. I think it's also on your handout as well. So we are talking about religion shaping our world. And it's been a great series. You've had great questions. And as we've moved through different religions and kind of seen how it works. And tonight I'd like to go back to a topic that we've already talked about once in the news. We have this little in the news segment. And on this in the news segment, this is actually getting worse, not better. Uh, the United Nations has called it an ethnic cleansing, a potential genocide. But I want to talk to you about it, not just because of that, as bad as that is, but I wanted you to see, we tend to think of, in our world, we tend to think of the major ideological struggles between Christianity and Islam. Now, I realize that's a false kind of a thing. Christianity is not at war with anybody, actually, and certainly not at war with Islam. But in general, we tend to think in those paradigms because that's what our news is showing us. We do have Islamic terrorism in the world. It is a major force in the world. It's shaping a lot of things well beyond its size, if you will, in the world. We sometimes think in America about the clash between Darwinism, what I'm calling Darwinism. It's a secular humanistic way of understanding the world. It is a faith system. It is a belief system. And we find that contention in our world. But there are also tensions in other ways around the world, not just religious, obviously ethnic, but here's one that we just don't think much about in America. The Rohingya refugees from Myanmar. I put a map on here today because I thought, well, you know, you may not know where Myanmar is. Myanmar is Burma. And then there was a military takeover. They renamed the country Myanmar. Myanmar is almost entirely Buddhist. But in this section, I'm going to show you one state right about there of Myanmar. It has about a million people, ethnic Rohingyas. Rohingyas are almost all Muslim, maybe 90 plus percent Muslim. Few Hindus, but mostly Muslim. And so the Buddhist government in Myanmar has made it illegal for them to be citizens. There have been reports of widespread oppression. The United Nations called them the most oppressed minority in the world. So what they're doing right now is they are fleeing out of here into, and uh, this isn't on the map, but this is Bangladesh, right there. That little country is Bangladesh. Bangladesh is 90% Muslim. And so this is a humanitarian crisis, but it's also a worldview and a belief system clash in southeastern Asia. I just want us to understand that these various belief systems, how you answer these questions, where did we come from? Why are we here? 
What constitutes the purpose of our life? What then makes certain things good and other things evil? What is permissible? What is not permissible? What do I owe to my fellow human beings? All of these belief systems answer those questions very differently. And the way they answer those questions really motivates their behavior in the world. And we see that on the world stage. So in this lesson, I'd like to focus in on Buddhism. Here's our map of religions in the world, kind of color-coded. You can see Buddhism in the yellow there, heavily focused in uh, Asia, in uh, the western part of China. But you can see where Buddhism is flourishing. About uh, half a billion Buddhists in the world. It is the uh, fourth largest. The unaffiliated, I'm going to put the Darwinists in there, that belief system, that secular belief system in there. But it's the fourth largest religion. I want to call it fifth because of that. But basically, uh, Buddhism is thriving in our world. It's an ancient religion. And I'd like to focus on that in this lesson. And I want to also talk about how uh, it relates to Christianity. So let's start with the origin and the history of Buddhism. So let's go back in time. I'll take you back on this map to 500 BC. So we're approximately 500 years before the time of Christ. By the way, as long as we're here, this has nothing to do with this lesson, but I just noticed that they're using the uh, more scholarly dating system. They call it BCE and CE. People ask me about this every now and then, and I always forget to tell you about that. Okay, so here's how uh, in the Western world, how we've traditionally dated is it starts with the birth of Christ. This is zero. And so before the time of Christ is BC. And after the time of Christ is AD. Comes from a Latin phrase, anno domini, in the year of our Lord, meaning how many years since Jesus was born. So 2017 AD is 2017 years since Jesus was born, and 500 BC is 500 years before Christ. Well, if you aren't Christian, if you don't acknowledge Jesus as the Christ, you don't necessarily want to have that dating system. So it's kind of a common thing in the world, and particularly in scholarly circles, but you'll see a lot of other people use it, to use CE and BCE. When do BC and CE start? Oh, with the birth of Jesus Christ. It uses the same schedule, but CE means in the common era, meaning on that side of Christ's birth. So there's no mention of Jesus Christ. But 2017 CE means the year 2017 in the common era, which is 2017 years since Christ. BCE is before the common era. That means on the other side of the birth of Christ. So, does it make any difference? No, it doesn't, but everybody feels better. So that's what CE and BCE are about. So, our time is going to take... It, actually, no one knows exactly when Buddha was born. I'm going to use 500. Some would say it's like 580, uh, 483. We're just going to round it off and say 500 years before the time of Christ. In this area, in fact, no one knows exactly where... Uh, Buddha was born, but probably right here, right somewhere between the border of India and Nepal. He was born in, in that part of the world, and he was born in one of these little kingdoms. You notice there's all these little kingdoms around in that time, and his father was a king of one of these small kingdoms. So I'll show you a picture. Um, 
That's off his Instagram account. So anyway, that's Siddhartha Gautama. That's his probably his, the name with which he was born, Siddhartha Gautama. And so this young man was born to a king and a queen in one of these regional kingdoms about 500 years before the time of Christ. His mother died when he was young, and his father began to protect him from the realities of the world. And so he grew up in the palace, and he didn't see people aging or dying or anything really unpleasant. He led the ultimate, ultimate sheltered lifestyle. Well, when he was about 29 years old, he had an occasion because of his curiosity. He was married at that point. He had a young child. But because of his curiosity, he sneaked out of the palace and he went about through the city. And according to legend, he saw three things as he went through the city. He saw an old man. He saw someone who was diseased and he saw a corpse. And it really shook his world as he walked through there and he realized the reality of aging, the reality of sickness, and the reality of death. And so he began to be obsessed with this idea of suffering, of human suffering, and what could be done, and was it meaningless? In other words, the idea that we will all grow old, we will suffer, and we will die. He became so distressed about this that he left his life of luxury, he left his wife and his young son, and he went out uh, into India, the area of India, and he began to search for the meaning of life. And he thought, first of all, he would become an ascetic. Ascetics at that time, and by the way, when we talk about Hinduism next time, you're going to see that their origins are very much intertwined, but their beliefs are pretty different now but their origins were intertwined. So there were these holy men, people looking for answers, and they would eat almost nothing. They would beg for their living. They would think and they would sometimes teach. And so he became an ascetic, starved himself, striving to find the answer to the problem of human suffering. What does this all mean? Well, he came to the realization after a few years that that asceticism, that depriving your body was not getting him to an answer. He also knew that self-indulgence, all those years he'd lived in the palace, was certainly not the answer. And so he came up with this idea of the middle way. You'll hear this a lot in Buddhism, but Buddhism being the middle way. In other words, it's not in denying yourself that you overcome suffering, and it's not in self-indulgence that you overcome suffering. You overcome suffering in this middle way. So one day he sat down underneath this tree and he, he decided he would sit there until he understood how to overcome human suffering. And he sat there for several days and then he became enlightened. He saw the answer, he understood, and all of a sudden he transcended suffering and he became the Buddha. Buddha means an enlightened one, an awakened one, someone whose understanding is surpassed and now they, they understand the world the way it is and they no longer experience suffering. So he became a Buddha. There's not just one, he is the original Buddha. And so he became a Buddha and for the next 45 years, he began to teach people the, how to overcome the meaning of suffering, how to overcome human suffering in life. He lived till about 80 years old and passed this on to his followers. And so down through the centuries, 
it spread from India to China to Japan. And as Buddhism spread and through all the centuries, as you've kind of realized from all the other belief systems we've talked about, the practices vary widely in Buddhism. I mean, very wide differences in practice, very wide differences in some of the beliefs of Buddhism. There's no one sacred text that says here is all the answers. There are some sayings of Buddha that are preserved from some of his uh, followers. There are things that have been written that are considered holy documents, but not inspired in any sense that you and I would think of as inspired, but it's just meditating and thinking about these essential truths. What holds Buddhism together, what makes it a coherent, unified system of thought are a couple of key ideas. Again, practices vary widely, but I want to cover a couple of the really foundational beliefs that Buddha came up with on how to overcome suffering. The first thing he taught was the four noble truths. These are the four truths to overcoming suffering. Now remember, Buddhism is focused on the idea of overcoming suffering. It really isn't theistic in the way that you might understand it. It doesn't really have a God. Buddha was considered more than a man, but less than a God. There is no God per se in the Buddhist system at all. If there, if there is any God, you are part of it. But there's no specific God in Buddhism. And yet you can attain something greater than what you are. So the first truth is he acknowledged the existence of suffering. He had seen it. He accepted that as the reality of life, an inevitable reality of life. Suffering exists. He said suffering arises from the attachment to desires. This is a foundational idea of the way Buddhists and Buddhism looks at the world is suffering exists because of attachment to desires. In other words, you suffer because you want things. And actually, even more subtle than that, you suffer because you become attached to things. For example, maybe a small example, but I believe every one of you men have experienced it. We are attached to the remote controller. Do you know that feeling when your wife gets the remote control and you've got it set up so you're flipping between all the games and you've got your presets set and she disregards the order of the universe and kind of messes up your, your precepts? You know, okay, that's attachment, guys. You suffer. You suffer very much because you're attached to this. Well, it's attachment to things, attachment to desires, and one of my uh, favorite Zen masters, and I'll, I'll tell you what Zen Buddhism is in a little bit. It's one of the two I kind of want to talk about. Listen to this. This is talking about the idea of attachment. He says, many sensations come and many thoughts or images arise, meaning you go look around and you see the real world, but they are just waves in your mind. Nothing comes from outside your mind. True understanding is that the mind includes everything. When you think there's something external, it only means that something is appearing in your mind. And listen to this. This is, this is quintessentially this idea. When we realize that everything we see is a part of emptiness, we can have no attachment to any existence. When we actually realize this truth, we will have no suffering. 
The realization of the truth is salvation. It's this idea of attachment, of believing that you care about things, that you crave things, you have physical desires, whether it's hunger or anything else, this, this is the source of suffering, is attachment to desires. Suffering ceases, the third truth, when attachment to desire ceases. So you begin to see the way to, to get beyond suffering is to stop having attachments to the world, this non-attachment. And then freedom from suffering is possible. That's a, another insight that he had, is that it is not inevitable. It is possible by practicing the eightfold path. So you have these four truths that he realized, and then there is an eight-step or eightfold path to moving beyond the idea of suffering and beyond the idea of attachment. So the eightfold path is right views, right thinking, right speaking, right actions, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right contemplation. Basically, this is kind of the essence of what you would know as Buddhism. It very much is going to feel moral to us. If Buddhism has a morality, it is encompassed in this. For example, the right livelihood would be making a living in a way that doesn't oppress any other living being. Right actions would be acting in a way that did not cause harm to any other being. You'll see a lot of Buddhists, not all Buddhists, but a lot of Buddhists are uh, vegetarian. They don't eat animals because they would see that as not right action. Uh, right effort, right mindfulness, right speech would be disavowing hatred and harshness, etc. What you would think of as a moral dimension is really part of this eightfold path of getting beyond attachment and getting past the idea of suffering. So the eightfold path is the way to move beyond suffering and attachment and get to the point, which I'll talk to you about in a second, which is the whole purpose of Buddhism. Okay? You have a question? Okay, then I want to go into these. I want to home in on four major beliefs that will kind of give you the heart of this. But this is what the Buddha came up with, 500 B.C., and has been taught ever since. It is the core of Buddhism. Question? So is there proof that Buddha actually lived, existed in history? Good question. Is there proof that Buddha actually lived? That is difficult to say if you think about the idea of proof. In, you know, in terms of his Facebook account got deleted. We don't know that. But in all seriousness, the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, is considered to be a historical personage. Yes, most, very few people doubt that somebody by that name existed. Now, are all the things that are told about him true? Maybe, maybe not. But there was clearly a Buddha, if you will, who taught these things. Most people think it was indeed a historical personage. Are there any shared origins between the Eastern religions and the stories in the Old Testament? Are there any shared origins between Eastern religions and the stories in the, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures? Uh, you know, there are people who speculate on that. I'll give you kind of the short version. This is my view. No. Uh, <laughs> there are parallels between the Old Testament and certain ancient Near Eastern uh, modes of thought but that would be west of here, okay? Think about west of this part of the world. I don't see any clear-cut interaction from the Old Testament era 
time of the patriarchs, like 2000 BC, traditional dating, uh, 1400 BC for the Exodus, and then Eastern thinking in like 500 BC. Um, big time differences, so I, I don't see any significant interactions with this Far Eastern religions. Is Scientology a form of Buddhism? Scientology is not really a form of Buddhism, but uh, I'll talk to you about syncretism. Syncretism just means putting a lot of stuff together. You know, you grab some here, grab some there. It's sort of like the religious buffet line, you know. There are a lot of syncretistic uh, views. For example, I'm going to suggest to you that modern American spirituality, you know, you think Oprah here, not any given religion, but the idea of spirituality is a syncretistic collection of just different ideas from different places. Buddhism definitely has contributed to that. And I'll tell you why in a little bit, why Americans like Buddhism, particularly Zen Buddhism, when we get to that. But America has been influenced by that. I'm going to give you a great example. Star Wars fans, any Star Wars fans in here? That is so Buddhist it isn't even funny. I mean, it's a mishmash, but it's essentially the force in the universe kind of a thing, and we kind of go into the force when we die. That's just totally ripped off from Buddhism. If copyright hadn't expired. So, so they're, they're, Scientology, no, I don't think so, but you, the, a lot of these religions take pieces or ideas from other things. Okay, so I have two other questions about that sort of that same idea. Is Hinduism and are Hinduism and Buddhism mutually exclusive, and also Christianity and Buddhism? Yes, good question. I'm going to talk about Hinduism next time, and you'll see that there are some common origins and common ideas, but they really go very different directions from there. And so Hindus and Buddhists not not interchangeable. You know, it's not like, oh, we'll go to the temple on Sunday, we'll go to the Hindu thing the next week. It, it's not like that. Christianity and Buddhism I am going to talk about as we go along. I'll hold that thought. There's some interesting interplays between Christianity and Buddhism. I'll get to that as we move on. Where does suffering that comes from physical pain and illness come in as opposed to desire? Good question. Where does suffering as opposed to physical pain Different Buddhists are going to see this a little differently. I mean, if you read the Dalai Lama's books, which I'll talk about him in a little bit, the Dalai Lama, he wrote a book, he wrote a lot of books. He wrote a book called The Art of Happiness. That happened to be the first one of his books that I read. It, it, don't go buy them. I mean, I'm just, read your Bible. But the, the, the real answers are in your Bible. But one of the things is, is he believes that we do need to try to take care of people and meet their physical needs. But Buddhists, if the Buddha is right, you can overcome suffering by realization, even that kind of suffering. Life and death are an illusion just as much as anything else is. We're going to talk about non-duality in a minute, but basically, would Buddhists feed people? Of course they would. I mean, absolutely they would feed people. But if you're really going to conquer human suffering, you actually need to be able to get to a state where even that does not disturb your peace. I have one question going back to um, keeping of time and the way we measure time, CE, yes. BC. Um, so before we had these methods, before we had an AD, BC calendar, what method was used for counting time in history? That's a great question. This is totally off the subject, but it's a great question. So before you had BC, AD, how did people keep time? 
It's actually more interesting than that. People in the world don't all use this. If you're Muslim, you use AH. If you've ever seen that after the Hajira, the flight. If you remember our talk about uh, Muhammad when he left Mecca because they were persecuting him and he fled to Medina, second holiest place, that is the beginning of the Muslim calendar. So if you go to a, de a devout Muslim, I'm not talking about just somebody that may work with you and say, I'm Muslim, they may or may not. Then you're, if you're going to be in America, you're going to have to use this calendar system to some extent. But Muslims will date it from that date. That's, oh goodness, that's, uh, let me see, 570, 610. That's about 620 or so. I mean, you know, it's way different than ours. Jews, Orthodox Jews, they, they use a calendar that dates from the beginning of everything. In other words, the creation of Adam. They look at their Old Testament and they go, you know what? Adam was created and it is now the year 5778. We just had Jewish New Year. I believe it's 5778. So 5778 since the beginning of everything. That's how they use the calendar. So people have always dated from significant events. In the Roman Empire, when you read those ancient documents, which I know you do all the time, so this will help you with that, they date from the beginning of the ruling of whatever emperor was emperor. They'll, in your Old Testament, you read the book of Daniel, which, by the way, is our next series. We're going to do some really interesting, wild prophecy. Um, probably give you some insight on whether to sell or buy, you know, based on what's happening here. But you'll say, in the fifth year of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. So they would always date from that. That's why when you get into ancient dates, very tricky to know exactly when things were happening because they would date from various things. In our modern world, almost everybody can convert their dates to BC and AD because it is the dominant cultural form in the world. Okay, Laura's shaking her head like, oh, that was interesting, let's move on. Okay, so we're moving on. <laughs> Some major ideas in Buddhism. I just want to talk about four major ideas. These are really foundational. Let's talk first about reincarnation. By the way, I once had somebody talk to me. This is very creative. I really admired it. Said, maintained to me that Christians believed in reincarnation. I said, you know, I tell you, that's the first time I've heard that. He said, well, if you remember the Nicodemus story and Jesus said, you must be born again, that's reincarnation. I said, I read that differently. Uh, yeah, I, I really didn't get that. Well, Buddhists believe in reincarnation, but what they really believe in is this cycle. There is a cycle in life of you are born and you have these uh, attachments, craving, you suffer, you die, and then you are reborn into another sentient life form, not necessarily as a person, okay? And so then you live your life, you suffer, you crave, you desire, you have you know, all the difficulties of life, you die and you are reborn again. It is an endless cycle of death and rebirth. It's called samsara and it's basically what we think of as reincarnation. Is It's sort of like ultimate groundhog day, except you don't necessarily come back as you. right? You may come back as some other life form. So this idea of reincarnation is a, is a key idea. Here's an interesting thing that's different than uh, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. Buddhists do not believe that you go away when you die. Obviously, it's not annihilationism. Like, Darwinists believe when you die, you're gone. 
period. You no longer exist. Nothing about you exists. You don't have a soul. You don't have a consciousness. Nothing exists. Buddhists don't agree with that. They actually think something comes back. But they don't think you have an immortal soul that is you no matter what into eternity. They're kind of caught in the middle of that a little bit. Something of you comes back, but you don't live forever. And so it's kind of in the middle between annihilationism of, of Darwin, like you're done, and an immortal soul of Christianity. But that's reincarnation. Attachment. Here's a quote from the Buddha. The root of suffering is attachment, is loving people, caring for things, wanting things, hoping for things. All of those things lead to suffering. And so attachment is this idea of non-attachment specifically is not being attached is a key idea in Buddhism. Nirvana. Nirvana is something we talk a lot about, but here's what nirvana actually is. Nirvana is liberation or salvation, if you will, from that endless cycle of death and rebirth. Does that make sense? In other words, how do I get off this train, right? I'm dying, I'm born, I suffer, I die, I'm born, I suffer, I die, etc. Stopping that cycle and not being reborn is nirvana. It is liberation from that cycle of suffering and death and rebirth. And so that's what all Muslim, uh, Buddhists are, want to attain, breaking out of that feudal, endless cycle. And that is what nirvana is, is moving past that. And then finally, karma. Karma is such an interesting idea. You're going to, we're going to talk about this with Hindus too. They have, a, they have a very similar idea of karma. Karma is often understood as causality. I mean, you've probably heard the sayings like, man, that's bad karma. You know, it's unlucky. Broke that mirror, seven years, bad karma. So karma is causality. It basic, basically says this. Good deeds lead to good karma and future happiness. Bad deeds lead to bad karma and future unhappiness. So, for example, if you have bad thoughts, thoughts that aren't in that eightfold uh, path, right speech, right thoughts, thoughts of uh, hatred or envy or jealousy or doing bad things, lying, stealing, etc., if you're doing those kinds of things, they sow the seeds of bad karma. In other words, you kind of like you got an account here and, and you're going into the, the negatives, right? Good deeds, good thought, good speech, good livelihood, all those eightfold things, build up positive energy, this positive karma. So what does karma do? Karma basically is sort of like the circle of life. It all comes around, right? So good karma can basically affect what form you get reborn into and what station in life you get reborn into. And uh, whether you even get reborn as a human, how happy your life might be. Now, you can't escape suffering. You can't escape death except by nirvana. But karma affects your happiness and your future destiny, if you will. That's an idea that many people have taken from Buddhism. Many Buddhists, though, in the world, instead of necessarily, when you, if you know Buddhists, they may be trying to attain nirvana, but most of the time it's trying to live that kind of a life to build up good karma so that they can improve their lives. It's sort of like accumulating good deeds or accumulating merit so that my future lives will be happier. 
And so you tend to see Buddhists attempting to be very moral by their understanding of morality to improve their life, to increase their good karma, if you will. So you actually see that idea even in Christianity. If you've ever thought about this, we have a common idea that, you know, you do good things and good things will come back to you. You do bad things and it probably comes around back to you. That's not even slightly a Christian idea. That's not even slightly a biblical idea. Nowhere in the Bible are you going to say, hey, you do good, some good stuff, I'll make sure good stuff eventually comes back to you. Oh, it's going to be fine. You go buy the person behind you in line a, a latte at Starbucks and you probably have a good day, right? Okay, I'm not against that. If I'm behind you, you can buy my latte if you want to and that'd be great. But that's not a biblical idea, but it is a very karmic idea. It's a Hindu, it's a Buddhist idea. You even see some Christians thinking that way. We just don't call it karma. We just think, hey, if I do enough good deeds, God will kind of make my life go pretty well. Does that make sense? That's Buddhist. That's not actually Christian. The idea that if I do some stuff, then good stuff will happen to me. Christian version is I do good stuff and God will make good things happen to me. It's karma in another form. So it's, it's not a biblical idea, but it is a very cultural idea. There's something in us, and I think that Buddhism's attached into a little bit of truth. There's something in us that wants justice, don't we? We want people who do good things to have good things happen. We don't like it when, quote, decent people, people trying to do good deeds, have awful things happen to them. It bothers us, and it should bother us, because God says, I will make the world right. This world operates that way because it's fallen. Buddhists would look at the world and say, that's just inevitable, but you can change, at least improve your situation with meritorious acts. So these are four kind of key ideas. Here's the difference I would say. Think about this. Buddhists would say, if you do good things, your future will be better. Here's what Christians actually would say. Your future is better in Christ, so go do good things. You see the difference? Buddhists say, do good things, and your future will be better. We say, once you know Christ, your future is better, no matter what happens, so go do good things. It's really quite different. Question? Well, I have a whole course of people wanting to know about reaping what you sow. <laughs> reaping what you sow is all about making comments on this stage and getting asked a question. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> reaping what you sow is a very biblical idea, but not in that sense. In other words, you can't get out of the Bible, if I do good things, good things will happen to me. Talk to Job about that. He's got major heartburn with that idea. The Apostle Paul is like, really? I was a really devout follower of Christ, and do you want to see how many times I got the, the snot beat out of me? You know, I mean, seriously. Look through that. Jesus, ultimate guy, says, I was pretty good by most people's standards. Even Mother Teresa thought I was a pretty good guy. They crucified me for your sins. You see what I'm saying? You can't get that transactional idea, but it is true what you sow, you reap. Those who sow obedience to Christ reap eternal life. Those who sow to the flesh, to the sinful nature, reap death. In other words, there is an inevitable justice in the universe which God supplies. It has nothing to do with who you trust. 
Buddhism, you'll see this when we get a little further on, but Buddhism is all about finding the right view. Christianity is all about finding the right person. Understand what I'm saying? Their point is, if you see the world right, do good things, you should get good things back. God says, that is not the way a fallen world works, but you do what I tell you to do, and I will set everything right. So the Bible, you know, you reap what you sow, is only true if there's a God to make that happen. And we believe there's a God to make that happen. If you don't, I have never found that experientially to be true. In fact, I think then that suffering is inevitable. You're going to suffer and then you die. And then you might be reborn to do it again, right? So that is only true in a Christian sense with a Christian God. Okay, so where do Buddhist believers uh, think that they go when they achieve nirvana? If they don't have an eternal soul, what happens to them? Great question, which leads me to the two major branches of Buddhism. Uh, because they answer that question slightly. They don't disagree. They just answer a little bit differently. Uh, and this, I'm painting with a very broad brush. There are all kinds of forms of Buddhism. But the two big ideas is Theravada Mahayana Buddhism. Theravada Buddhism says the goal is to attain nirvana. In other words, come to the realization to see the world properly, non-attachment, non-duality, realize that this is illusory. In other words, if you attain this level of realization, nirvana, you will break the cycle of suffering and rebirth, and then you achieve nirvana, this state. It's not very well defined. Think of it as kind of joining the cosmic consciousness of the universe. You have broken out of suffering and you have total peace, but you're not you like eternal soul kind of you, okay? So it's more of a joining the consciousness of the universe. Mahayana Buddhists, the goal is to attain Buddhahood, which means I have the realization to break the cycle of suffering and death, but instead I am going to stay within the cycle to help others achieve awakening. It's called becoming a bodhisattva. And so the idea is... I'm going to come to that realization and be above suffering and understand exactly how you need to see the world. But instead of moving on, not being reborn, because I can now just not be reborn. I've broken the cycle. I will be reborn, and I will dedicate my life to helping you come to that realization and achieve nirvana. So those two schools, they don't disagree with each other. They just have slightly different goals. So I think that kind of answers a little bit. What is their goal? Some would say to break the cycle. Others would say break that cycle by realizing it, but then go help others to, uh, to get there, okay? I'd like to talk a little bit about that second one because I wanted to talk about two kinds of Buddhism. There's so many kinds, but two kinds that are probably pretty well known to us. One is Zen Buddhism had huge effects in America, and Tibetan Buddhism had almost no effect in America, but the Dalai Lama's pretty cool. So Zen Buddhism... Is a, it's a Chinese school, became a Japanese school, best known as Japanese Zen, came to America. It really works in America because, first of all, there's no God. There's no specific rules. So if you don't like organized religion, this is going to sound pretty good. It's a little new agey, and when it came to America, it kind of got translated. The Zen Buddhists think that you can achieve nirvana, enlightenment, 
realization. And they focus on uh, a couple of things. One, they do a lot of meditation. So if you think about Buddhists meditating, a lot of Buddhists meditate, but not like Zen Buddha. Buddhists meditate, breathing, focusing, all of these techniques help you achieve nirvana, and they believe it can happen suddenly. That you can, I mean, how American is that? Immediate gratification, right? It's like, no, nah, you don't have to work on it for years. You just got to do it right. You know, oh, man, my back hurts from sitting up and meditating. But if you get to realization, boom, it happens suddenly. Sudden realization uh, for Zen Buddhism. And then uh, the other thing is the idea of focusing on insight, I want to show you this. Zen Buddhism in particular uses these things called koans, koans. And koans are ways to focus your thinking to get beyond the dualism. For example, you, I picked some you probably heard about. Two hands clap and there is a sound. What is the sound of one hand clapping? What is that trying to get at? You go, that's nonsense. Yes, and that's the point is if you think that that makes a sound and it's any different than that, you're living in a dualistic world. Here's another great one. If you meet the Buddha, you should kill him. And the reason for that is if you think the Buddha is outside of you, you're already wrong. In other words, the Buddha is in here. You too are a Buddha. You just need to come to enlightenment. And then I love this. This is really good. There are all kinds of stories like this. These are so fun to read. So uh, Teshu is a young student of Zen. He visited a ma one master after another. He called upon Dukan, and uh, desiring to show his attainment, he said, the mind, Buddha, and sentient beings, beings do not exist. The true nature of phenomena is emptiness. This is purely good doctrine here. There is no realization, no delusion, no sage, no mediocrity. There's no giving and nothing to be received. Dokuan, who was smoking quietly, said nothing. Suddenly, he whacks the guy with his bamboo pipe. Well, the youth becomes quite angry. Well, if nothing exists, he said, why are you so angry? Meditate on that for a day or so, and you might get to sudden realization, you know, this, this idea. So for us, it, it is a little bit different. But Zen Buddhism has made pretty good transference into America because we like the idea of stilling our mind, of breathing and calming down. We don't see it as, quote, religious, but it is a belief system. And we tend to use it like we use yoga. Throw away all anything that seems like religion, and can this make me calmer, more peaceful, lead a more natural, kind, gentle life? It's kind of syncretistic. But uh, Zen Buddhism, you'll see it practiced in one way or another, in one little form or another, a lot in America. Yes, ma'am. Well, you almost got the question. Where does yoga come in? Where does what? Yoga come in. Yoga. I'll tell you what I'll do. Yoga next time because yoga is more Hindu than it is Buddhist. Okay? And is there such a thing as Christian yoga? That We'll talk about that next time. Uh, that, that should keep you saying, hey, this could be interesting. I want to know about yoga. Anything else? Or can I go on to the Dalai Lama? We'll have a couple others. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. So how did Buddhism spread originally and how does it spread today? Buddhism is, uh, does not, net, well, I mean, every, everything's got some violence in its past, but fundamentally, the idea of Buddhist, Buddhism spreading is to speak to people and teach them. Tell them the story of the Buddha, let them acknowledge the reality of suffering, teach the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, 
and you basically have people who become disciples and who begin living this life. They tend to serve under masters, under gurus, under lamas, I mean, people that are further along, and they tend to revere living Buddhas. In other words, people who have overcome, have been enlightened and awakened and don't have to be reborn, but they've stayed here to help everybody else. And so they tend to be revered. And so different schools have believed that there are different Buddhas, people who have achieved enlightenment. And so they tend, uh, you have monasteries, you have Buddhist monks, Buddhist nuns, people that devote their lives to, to learning and to be, uh, reaching enlightenment. Lay Buddhists would practice the Eightfold Path in a desire to improve their karma and potentially become enlightened and break this endless cycle. So it basically is spread evangelistically, if you will. How does their view of attachment affect their value of human life? Yeah, the idea of attachment has to do with, uh, it doesn't go the way you would think is like human life is meaningless. In fact, right action would be to be kind, to do nothing that will harm human life. I mean, you've probably seen the stories of not wanting to even kill a butterfly or, or swat a bug or anything because re that could be somebody reincarnated. But the point is, is that all life, I want to do no harm. But the idea of it being an illusion is also true. It just doesn't result necessarily in devaluing life. But that's a good point. Okay? So, Zen Buddhism. I just gave you a tiny little piece of that, but you'll see a lot of Zen Buddhism. Meditation, breathing, uh, meditative techniques, thinking, you know, trying to realize the truth and the non-duality of the universe. And then probably one of the most famous Buddhists in the world is the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama, a Lama is a guru, uh, he is considered a Buddha, an enlightened one, but he is considered a Buddha the first one was back in 1400 A.D. So about 1400 A.D. was the first Dalai Lama. So he becomes a Buddha, becomes enlightened, but, dis but chooses not to leave the cycle of death and rebirth, but to be reincarnated and continue to teach. And so after he died, they start looking around because they know he's going to be reincarnated, and they kind of do these tests and figure out, ah, you... Are, you are the first Dalai Lama. Now in this body, you're the second Dalai Lama, but you're the same being, and you're a Buddha. And so you take this little kid, put him up, and everybody goes, whoa, you're the Buddha. What? You know, and you begin to train him, etc. This is the 14th Dalai Lama. In other words, the 14th reincarnation of this particular Buddha. And so he has been very influential in the world. It, Tibetan Buddhism, he's always been the leader of the Tibetan Buddhists. And he's been a unifying force, a spiritual leader of Tibetan Buddhism. Tibetan Buddhism is practiced a little differently. It's the same basic ideas, but practiced uh, very differently. And so this Dalai Lama is still alive, obviously. Born in 1935, was uh, fled his country when the Chinese overran it, went into India in a government in exile, and has continued to work for peace, the restoration of Tibet, etc. since that time. But he's become quite a celebrity, writes books, gives speeches about the essential, basically the essential Buddhist doctrines, like this is the way to overcome suffering in life, and they become teachers. And so that's what the Dalai Lama is, is basically one of those Buddhas who has stayed in the cycle of rebirth 
to help everyone else. So let me give you just a couple of thoughts here on uh, Buddhism and Christianity. Let me finish with this. Buddhism and Christianity, as we went through, you probably noticed a few things. You go, well, that's actually kind of like Christianity. I, I think that Buddhism undoubtedly has tapped into a few truths. In other words, suffering happens. I'd agree with that. Suffering is inevitable. I don't know anybody in the history of the world. I mean, maybe it's happened before I was born, but I don't know that anybody's escaped suffering. We are indeed in a cycle of being born and dying, not being reincarnated, and we believe we have a soul, but we believe that since the fall of man, death entered the world, and it won't be until Christ comes and defeats death, and by his resurrection, he has doomed death itself. So we do believe in a suffering and death. We just don't believe in that cycle. We believe that there's somebody above it. But some of the key differences is Buddhism would teach one to withdraw. And Christianity teaches us to engage in the world. This non-attachment, realizing that this is all illusion, we don't think that at all as Christians. We think this is real and it matters and you need to dive into the world. There's a different posture toward the world. I'm not telling you that Buddhists don't do good deeds. or um, That's not my point. My point is their basic thought is your salvation is in here and you just need to realize it. And so all your quest for nirvana, for salvation, for getting above is all inside here. Christians say my work is out there. My salvation is completely beyond me. I don't have it in here to save myself. So it's a very big difference between the two. Second, Buddhism's goal is to avoid suffering. Christianity believes suffering is essential. If you read your New Testament, you will be hard-pressed to find any way whatsoever to be a Christian without some suffering. I'm not saying you impose it on yourself, but when we look at suffering in life, a Buddhist looks at suffering and says, I just don't understand this well enough to get beyond it. Christians look at it and say, there's purpose in this, and my God is doing something in me through this. Even though it's evil, my God will work it for good. Romans 8, 28, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. My God has a purpose in this suffering. You see how very different those ideas are? Christianity and Buddhism are very fundamentally different. And then finally, like I said before, Buddhism says if you have the right view, then you can be saved, you can overcome. Christianity says you can have all the views you want, you can know all the doctrine that you want, you need to meet the right person. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Buddha says, I can show you the way to get beyond suffering. You see how very different those two things are? So again, I'm not trying to talk about who's better, who's worse. Obviously, I believe that one is true and one is not true, but there are really fundamental differences in that. And so Christianity, we need, one of the reasons I like to talk about this is so that we can realize that when we go speak to a world, whether they're secular or syncretistic, got a little Buddhism, got a little Oprah, got a little New Age, whatever it may be, we need to focus on the things that make Christianity so fundamentally, uniquely different because this stuff's not working out well. I don't know if you've read a paper lately. This isn't working well. And I think the world is ready to hear the truth of the gospel. So Buddhism, ancient religion, a religion that's still alive and well today and really in kind of basically being cannibalized with a lot of secular ideas. Next, I wanna talk about Hinduism. And in addition to yoga, Here's an interesting question. If Gandhi is really as good a guy as everybody said he was, 
and he was a pretty good guy. How could a holy man like Gandhi not be in heaven? What would the Hindus say, and what would the Christians say? That's what we'll talk about next time. Thank you guys very much.